this is Hap May with Illegal Play, and I'm here today with Chelsea Alzi. She is a recent Houston Law School graduate, has joined the firm, took the bar, and is awaiting results, and is going to be helping us out on, on tax, bankruptcy, and some other matters. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I am so happy to be here and learning everything we do here at the firm. There is quite a lot to learn. You do deal in some very specific matters. So what are we talking about today, Hap? Well, today I thought we'd talk about certain situations where creditors in a bankruptcy may want to try to prevent the bankrupt from getting a discharge of the debt that they owe our client creditor. What does that mean, getting a debt discharged? I don't understand why a debt would be dischargeable. Well, generally speaking, when a debtor files bankruptcy, and there's some variations of this, but when generally, generally speaking, the idea is that the bankruptcy estate, usually re- represented by a trustee, collects, takes the non-exempt assets, sells them, liquidates them, and pays, pays the creditors cents on the dollar. What does it mean to liquidate? Basically, in bankruptcy, uh, and typically in, 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 so let's say, a Chapter 7, the trustee is appointed, and the trustee will take the assets... And in a business, there are basically no exempt assets. With the, with the individuals, there can be some exemptions. But they take the non-exempt assets, sell them, and that's what they mean by liquidation. You take real property, you take stock, you take inventory, you take equipment. Uh, in certain cases, you can take intangible property or oil and gas rights or something like that. And the trustee, they sell the property and turn it into cash. They pay the cost of the bankruptcy and then make money available to the creditors who can prove that they are entitled to money. Okay, and my understanding in bankruptcy is that once once that cash is there and available, you pay out your creditors in a specific order. Some have priority over others. Correct. But we're not going to get into that in today's podcast. But once the money's gone, that's it, right? Well, generally speaking, what the, once the money, that's it. The creditors have no right. The debtor gets a discharge. So what I mean by that is there might be more than one creditor. Some get everything they're owed out of this pot of money, and then some might be left with, with either, nothing. Either cents on the dollars or nothing. And typically, secured creditors, those who have collateral, get the lesser of the value of the collateral or the amount of their debt. And, and sometimes that's sort of the end of the story. A lot of times you have banks that have blanket liens on businesses, inventory equipment, accounts receivable, real estate, you know, basically everything. And there's not enough money to pay the bank. And so the bankruptcy process involves liquidating the assets and paying the bank and then nobody else really gets any money. Okay. And so, in other words, those debts that are owed to these other people, there's not enough assets, there's not enough cash to pay them back, those then get discharged. Those other creditors generally get discharged, yes. But today we're talking about how to argue that your debt should be non-dischargeable, that should remain in place even after bankruptcy. Correct. Okay. So, how does that work? There, there, There are a couple of noteworthy provisions in the bankruptcy code, section 727 and section 523, both of which deal with non-discharge, non-dischargeability issues. Okay, so what is 727? 727 is a provision of the code that basically requires the debtor to cooperate and comply with the bankruptcy process. And in so doing, they have to file various schedules, 
make certain disclosures, make themselves available for testimony, both in a 341 creditors meeting, sort of a brief informal, or a more formal 2004 exam. And there's this information that has to be disclosed and provided in connection with the bankruptcy process. Okay, so if the debtor doesn't cooperate in the bankruptcy proceedings, then what does this... Then any creditor or the court or the U.S. trustee's office, which monitors the bankruptcy process, can make a, a what they call 727 motion, which is basically a motion that, if granted, denies the debtor a discharge of any debt, basically eliminating any advantage the debtor got you know, from filing bankruptcy in the process because they have now filed bankruptcy and subjected themselves to trusteeships and all of all the rights that the, the court has uh, to supervise their activities and yet has not gotten a discharge from the debt. Okay, so that sounds like it's, there's some incentive for them to, to play ball and, and do what's asked of them when, you, when they're in bankruptcy. Hopefully so. Okay. Hopefully so. Now, there are a lot of bankrupt people bankrupt just, just to try to buy, you know, a month or two. And it's the sort of bad, what they call bad faith, you know, bankruptcies from the start. Okay. Other other problems develop, you know, where they, they go into it with good faith, but, you know, as things go, go bad, they, you know, fail to continue to cooperate. Okay. So then that's 727. How is 523 different? 523, it, it has a different focus than 727. 523 looks at the, the, the creditor's actual debt to determine whether that debt is dischargeable. And there are some exceptions to uh, what can be a discharge. Well, and we were talking about it before this, and I remember you saying something about, you know, there's there's fraud involved on the part of the debtor, but it, it's pre-bankruptcy. Yeah, and, 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 and let me explain that. First, first of all, 727 has kind of a laundry list of things that uh, are non-dischargeable. Things like alimony, child support, certain drunk driving charges are not dischargeable. There's certain taxes that are, that are not dischargeable. But in addition to that, there is a provision, which is where most of the 523 litigation falls into, is a debtor is not able to obtain discharge if the debtor engaged in fraud while obtaining credit. Best example of that is somebody goes to the bank, says, I want a bank loan, gives the bank a false financial statement, saying they have assets they don't do, income they don't have. I mean, make some material, fraudulent misrepresentation in order to induce the bank to lend the money. The bank takes that information, relies upon it, and makes a loan. Later on, debtor defaults on the loan, goes into bankruptcy, tries to get a discharge from that. The bank and it's not always a bank, but but the creditor can then file an action to try to establish the fact that fraud was used in obtaining that credit, and if successful, then that debt is not discharged. And even though the the debtor has gone through the bankruptcy process and may have his other debts solved, he will still owe that creditor the debt. Okay. So then what I'm learning is here at at Hap May's firm, we figure out whether or not a 727 or 523 would be the more appropriate route to take when representing Co- creditors. Correct. And first, first of all, you kind of have to analyze, the, you know, how, how big is the debt we are trying to enforce and try to figure out whether that the, the economics are, are worth doing. Also have to look at, even if we get the debt discharged, is that debtor ever likely to have enough money to be able to pay us? If we decide in, in that in that strategy that yes, this is worth pursuing, and you know yes, this is a, a type of debtor that you know he'll be down today but up tomorrow, 
and yes, we want we want to you know, stay in line so when he's up tomorrow we can get some money. So we can look at that. So once we've determined that the economics are such that we want to pursue it, then we have to look up, has the debtor cooperated? That at least arguably support the idea that some sort of fraud, misrepresentation, wrongful acts were done in connection with obtaining the credit at any stage, whether it's the initial loan or additional advances or extensions, continuations, things like that. Is there any any fraud misrepresentation with regard to that? If we determine that there is either some lack of cooperation, lack of disclosure in the whole entire bankruptcy process, or that we have the facts dealing with fraud in our loan, we can proceed. There are cases where you want to think about whether you, if you have a valid 523 action that you think you can win on, you want to ask yourself, do I also want to bring a 727 action? Because here's the problem with that. If I file both a 727 action and a 523 action, and I win both of them, then the debtor not only owes me money, he owes a whole bunch of other creditors money. So maybe I just want to bring the 523 action. Let him get his discharge. Let the debtor get his discharge from everybody else except for me on my 523 action. Then after the bankruptcy process is over, I'm the only one he has to deal with. And at some point in the future, he's going to want to get rid of me. And you're in a lot better position, and he'll give you a lot more money if you're the only person he has to pay to clean his slate, as opposed to a situation where all the pre-bankruptcy creditors are still around and he has to deal with all of them. Well, that was very informative. I definitely learned a lot about non-dischargeable debt. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? You know, in the right situation, this can be very valuable. Somebody's out there that, that needs this kind of help. We'd love to help them. Thanks for taking the time today, Hap. All right. And this is Hap May with Illegal Play.